0: Open your Bibles this morning to Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippians chapter 4, verse 10 through 14, the passage I was planning on preaching to you even before going to Israel, coming back knowing that we will be out of the book of Romans for a while and um, how well you were served by both Michael and, and Clay and we were in Philippians last week, and so we're going to look at Philippians 4 today to prepare our hearts uh, with this very familiar passage and in light of, uh, of our church thanksgiving this week. And to be thankful is actually a telltale mark of a believer. Um, I don't know what comes in your mind when you think of a thankful person, a thankful person is, is not someone who is just happy and bubbly all of the time. The thankfulness that the Bible talks about is a deep-seated um, awareness and gratitude to God for, for life and, and what comes, even the, the difficult things. And We'll return to the book of Romans next week, but it's, uh, it's something that only believers uh, are capable of. Um, if you remember the condemnation that God gives to, the, uh, to the, the godless person in chapter 1, you remember the condemnations of Romans, there's the, the, the godless person in chapter 1, the moral or religious person in chapter 2, and then the general condemnation in chapter 3. Listen to Romans 1, verse 21, about how he even begins this condemnation. It says, For although they knew God... They did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. So the condemnation of an unbeliever, a godless person, is someone, they, they live their lives indifferent toward, toward God's person. And they're unthankful toward his, his gifts. I mean, Paul says, failing to recognize all the good things that come from the Lord... And then refusing to thank him for them is a mark of an unbeliever. It's a, it's a mark of the autonomy that, that was once operating in our hearts before we, we, we came to Christ. And it's a greater indicator. Being unthankful is a greater indicator of your heart than, than you might think. Because as I said, it's rooted in this, in this autonomy. Unbelievers... Paul says, receive the common grace of God, the the sun rising and the rain coming, and they don't even think about God, which is why they don't don't thank Him. One of the common ways this residue comes out in our lives as believers is through through discontentment. I mean, as Christians, I mean, we've acknowledged God, I mean, the, the uh, the very... the term Christian means little Christ. We, we have acknowledged that the Lord Jesus Christ, He is God. He's Lord. He's master over our lives. So as Christians, we know better than to, to deny God, but sometimes we, we grumble whenever things don't, don't go our, our ways. I mean, have you ever been discontent? I have daily sometimes. In, in fact, I find my heart is a factory for dissatisfaction more than I care to, to admit. I mean, it doesn't even have to be provoked by some horrible circumstance. I, I can have too much to do and be bored. I can have nothing to do and wish I had less. I, I can get exactly what I want and, and then immediately want more or wish something was different. And, and discontentment is a, is a disease of desire that's actually plagued every human being since the garden. I mean, we even have proverbs about it. Unbelievers have proverbs about it. You, you've heard the, the, the grass isn't always greener on the other side of the fence. A, a worldly proverb to, to just say, be content, be aware, that, you know, just because what you desire uh, may not be better. And as I've told you before, the, that that's because the if you're looking at a green spot, it's typically uh, the spot over the septic tank. That's usually where the grass is, is greenest. And our culture is full of discontented people. And we understand that there are circumstances that come in life that, that just rock you. But then there's just the, the normal grind of everyday life where, where we have a world that, that looks for something more, looks for something else. In 2019, the Washington Post printed the results of a study... That actually tracked the happiness of Americans since 1976. Um, 1976, I was six years old. Um, how they tracked it, I, I don't know. But but they, they tell us the numbers keep declining, even even though technology and prosperity is is increasing, happiness is, is declining. And they calculated a 50 percent decrease in happiness since 1990. Again, I don't. How do you how do you measure? Uh, uh, that uh, interestingly, the, the the study showed that Republicans are twice as happy as Democrats. By the way, the, that's that seriously. That's what the Washington Post says. But the analysis had nothing to do with politics. They said that Republicans are typically more religious, and because of that, their their happiness meter was you know was higher. But in life, promiscuity and drugs and frivolous spending and job hopping and people hopping is all ways that the world seeks uh, contentment but, but never finds it. I mean, it is an Ecclesiastes world. We live outside of the garden. We live with the curse all, all around us. And sometimes the curse feels like a low-grade fever, and sometimes it strikes like a lightning bolt. Um, and our culture sings songs about living in that kind of world. The, the Rolling Stones sang, I can't get no satisfaction. I'm sure none of you have ever heard that song or know anything about it. But you felt it, haven't you? You, you like me, coming to Christ at age 24, you, you have looked for satisfaction somewhere other than God. And if you're a believer, you know that He is the only one. That can fulfill the longing in your, in your heart. Uh, in fact, our primary pastime in America runs on discontentment. That's the fuel. MacArthur said your favorite TV show is not what's really on TV. Your show is there to make you watch the commercials. And so a company can tell you that you need something that you didn't even know you wanted before you turned the TV on. I mean, to be discontent is a longing for something better than your present situation. And that doesn't sound too bad until you realize that, that your heart is the primary instrument that manufactures those, those, those longings. It's not circumstantial. Proverbs 27.20 says, Sheol, which is the grave or hell, and, and Abaddon, which is the abyss, are never satisfied. It's where we get to term it's, It's like a bottomless pit. Look at what else it says. Nor are the eyes of man ever satisfied. The sin of discontentment at its core is a dissatisfaction with what God has has ordained. It's a kind of restless craving for something that you don't have. And it's often the result of ongoing circumstances, which a good God has designed. There are plenty of examples of discontentment in the Bible. I think the nation of Israel being the primary illustration. I mean, they came out of Egypt. They were set free by this miraculous parting of the Red Sea. And a few days later, Moses goes up on the mountain and to receive God's law. And, and the people get tired of waiting. And so they, they made a golden calf to worship. And then when they're called on the carpet, they blame Moses and, and God for being gone too long. You, we didn't know when you were coming back. So what else do you expect us to to do. And our fallen nature we're 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 naturally discontent. One writer said it's because we're always playing the if only game. If only I had more money in my bank account, I'd be content. If if only I had a wife, I would be complete. If only I was without a wife, I would be happy. <laughs> If only my church did things a certain way. If only my children were better behaved. If only I had a job that I enjoyed. And the if-onlys are, are, are endless. I mean, we tend to think a change of circumstances will bring about a change in our contentment. But all it does, all a change in circumstances do is give our discontented heart a different vantage point. And there are plenty of scriptures that warn against it. Hebrews thirteen five. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, we know the, the second part of that passage, we quote it regularly. I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. But, but it's connected to the first part. Be content with what you have because you have Christ. I mean, that's the, the way to summarize that, that passage. Or you can look at First Thessalonians 5.18. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. I mean, you know what God's will is in every circumstance. I mean, even when you don't know what God's circumstantial will is, it's, it's to give thanks. Lord, I, I, I don't know how I will get through this, but you're good. And I thank you for being God. Or maybe another, 1 Thessalonians 6, 6-10. through Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. That's impossible for an unbeliever to say. It's difficult for a believer if you don't have your eyes fixed on Christ, which is why passages like this are in the Bible. Uh, but notice that the, this first half of the passage uses this, the, the term contentment twice. And then the second half, which I'm about to bring up, shows you where the actual issue lies. So be this way. Notice this is a contrast. But, in contrast to the, to the content, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. I mean, the issue, Paul says, comes from our desires, not our circumstances. Unless you misunderstand, discontentment, that, that, that deep-seated state that you get into... Is sin. I mean discontentment is, is, is not being rocked by by something unexpected. It's how you respond over a period of time whenever the waves calm. Uh, Puritan Thomas Boston, in his sermon, The Hellish Sin of Discontent, said the tenth commandment actually forbids discontentment. Thou shalt not covet. He said, Discontentment is a distrusting of God. Contentment is trusting God implicitly. Thus, the discontent is the opposite of a faith. I mean, discontentment is to dispute God's plans. I mean, in my desire to be sovereign, I think my plan is better for me. You might not understand the plan of God, but when you know God's character, God is good and God is sovereign and he's ruling over our lives, we say, we trust you. Or as one writer put it, I love me and have a wonderful plan for my life. That's how we can operate when we're apart from Christ. Discontentment is a determination to be self-governing, like Adam and Eve, who wanted to taste the tree that, that would transform them into independent kings and queens. And Discontentment is a desire for something that God has not been pleased to give us. I mean, He gave us His Son, and therefore we can trust Him for the trivial things of life. Romans 832 Discontentment, that deep-seated state that you can sink into, subtly or perhaps not so subtly declares that God must have made a mistake. I mean, my present circumstances are wrong, and they should be otherwise, and I'll only be content... Whenever they change, I mean, discontentment desires the wisdom of God or denies the wisdom of God, I should say, and exalts my, my own wisdom. It was the heart of, at the heart of the first sin. Has God really said? Well, today Paul's going to help us with the, the antidote to, to that, to keep you from getting there or pull you out of it if, if you're already there. And he'll teach us the, the secret of contentment. In, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 1 through 9 passages that come right before. Since we're parachuting in, let me kind of give you a little bit of of orientation, even though Clay was there last week. Verses one through nine is an instruction about steadiness in in the Christian life. If you want to be stabilized in the Christian life, read verses one through nine. And he starts this new section in verse 10, where he offers thankful praise. In verses 10 through 20, He offers thankful praise. And right out of the gate, he addresses this topic of of contentment. I mean, Paul just got done saying, stop being anxious about your, your circumstances. And we need that because there are plenty of circumstances that come that can create anxiety. Now he'll show us how to be content in those circumstances. I mean, the topic shouldn't surprise us. Because all of the components of trusting in the Lord or being contented in the Lord, regardless of our lot, are peppered throughout the letter. I mean, Philippians has four chapters. There's 104 verses. And Paul speaks of joy 16 times in the book. And he speaks of Jesus 17 times. And there's obviously a connection between joy that's not based on circumstances in Jesus, who is the source of joy. Of joy, I mean, Paul says in the letter to the Philippians, when we follow the master's pattern, the example that he's laid down for us, and his masterful plan, as we do that, we will find true contentment. I mean, the theme of the letter is the selfless Christian life that brings true joy and true joy. Paul's Paul's given this letter. He writes it as a thank you note, as an update of his circumstances. He's now in prison and. Exhortation for unity, and then he gives a little warning in there about, about false teachers. But verses 10 through 20, that we're going to look at a part of, is the thank you portion that's tucked away in the, in the letter. And he wants to teach them the secret to, to contentment. I and mean, frankly, I can think of a no better topic approaching Thanksgiving. As Paul closes out this great letter, he expresses thanks to the church for the gift that they gave him. And this thank you note comes in four parts. Look if you would at verse 10. There's praise for their care for him. But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you, you have revived your concern for me. That's praise. And then he gives a qualification in this thank you. You were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. And then he gives a second qualification about his own circumstances. Not that I speak from respect of want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. He talks about how he learned that. And then he gives that passage, I can do all things through him or through Christ who strengthens me. And then he ends with his gratitude restated. Verse 14, nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction." And in verses 11 through 14, we find the secret to contentment. It's learned through circumstances. And Paul says it comes through the empowerment of Christ or Christ's capability. Two surprising secrets that we'll call it to Christian contentment. Contentment is learned through circumstances. And contentment comes through Christ, through His empowerment. We'll give you what at verse 10. Paul says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity to act. So the first surprising secret is is it's learned. And it's taught through circumstances. And it's instruction comes in the extremes of of life. In, In verses 11 and 12, he talks about every situation... And then he talks about the extremes at the end of verse 12. In every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and in suffering need. I think one of the most important things that you can learn or remember about studying the Bible is that these are real people writing in real circumstances. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul in his current circumstances writing these things. I mean, this is not Paul once he, he has you know, ascended to the mountaintop and spent 40 days of meditation where God's been ministering to his heart. I mean, he's writing to a church that has been extremely helpful to him while he is in the middle of significant difficulty. And just as you would write an email, there's some place where you're going to give thanks for something that, that a person has done for you. I mean, you're going to thank Aunt Joni for the for the most recent birthday gift, or are you going to thank somebody for praying for you? And Well, here is Paul. His, he's thanking this church for their gift to sustain him while he's in, in prison. And, and it had been a long time since they'd been able to do that before. I mean, 10 years to be exact. And Acts 16 actually tells us that the Philippian church was was planted by Paul when, when he came to Philippi. You remember in Acts 16, he goes and preaches the gospel by the river, and there's some women that are converted there, and then a riot breaks out. He's thrown into jail, and, and then he was delivered out of jail by the, by the earthquake. Well, that was 10 years ago, and Paul is in jail again. Yet, yet the, the church that, that loved him greatly hadn't had an opportunity to express the their tangible care since then. And that's what verse 10 means. It, it says when you, you lacked opportunity. The, the word is, is, uh, is kairos, where we get season or time. You lack the season. You lack the time. You lack the opportunity. They, they had no way to fulfill their care or affection for Paul. But then he says your care or affection has been revived, which is why he, he's thanking them. And the word there is when a, when a tree blooms again, uh, we just entered into, into fall, and so the leaves are falling off, and the tree is dormant, but in the springtime, it will, it will bloom again. That's the idea that Paul uses here. I mean doesn't it create a longing in your heart when you truly care for someone and there's nothing that you can do to, to fix it? There's nothing you can do to help them? And this is the Philippians. they know Paul's hurting. And they can't do anything to, to meet his need. There was no opportunity for them to meet their, their, their need. This morning, you, you, you want to do that with, you know, with Melissa and the kids. And, and you, can't, you can't remove the pain, but you desire to. Paul says the Philippians were, were that way about him. I mean, they knew he was in jail, they knew he had needs, but they couldn't relieve him. So they, they end up sending Epaphroditus along with his gift. And in, in the same way, doesn't it renew your love for that same person when, you, when you're able to meet that need? You get the chance to do that. I mean, they never stopped caring for him. Their care was just dormant. And now it can express itself again. And there's joy in doing that. And, and Paul makes it clear it wasn't because they intentionally neglect him. neglected him. It was circumstantial. Paul had been in situations that created need, and he doesn't blame the church or God for that matter. He says he knows they desired to help him, but they couldn't. More importantly, he also knows that God has ordered his circumstances. I mean, Paul knew that God was sovereign, not only in supernatural circumstances, but also in the, the natural, everyday orchestration of things. Don't just think that, that God is is God in the lightning bolts. God is God when the sun comes up and whenever it goes down in the natural orchestration of things. I mean, Paul knew that God could have delivered him. He could have accomplished his purposes through some intervention, like an earthquake. That was miraculous intervention. But Paul also knew that God accomplishes his purposes through the the normal events that take place. Like keeping him in prison so that the gospel could spread to, to Caesar's household. In knowing both of those things, Paul never grew discontent over the fact that they, they hadn't sent him anything. But you have to fight to think that way. I mean, I gave you a practical process for that, that fighting several years ago. I mean, I don't know if you remember, but when I was in grade school, the, the fire department would come into the school... And they, they would teach you what to do if, if, if you ever caught on fire somehow. Um, stop, drop, and roll. Do you remember that? Well, if you ever feel the fire of discontentment, that burning in your heart, do the same thing spiritually. First of all, stop. I mean, you, you have to recognize discontentment whenever it's creeping in. And the first thing is stop what you're doing um, Stop grumbling, stop sulking, stop the critical tone toward others, stop looking at whatever is causing the covetousness. I mean, your mind is like a train. And it gets on the track and it picks up steam. And the more fuel you add to the engine, the faster it goes. And and you have to remove the fuel that's adding to the fire. I mean, always remember, sin has babies and they're ugly babies. And with, with bad thinking, you have to, you have to break that water that, that's running down the, the, the hill. And it's, it's, it, it starts, and the, the farther it goes, the faster it goes. I mean, when we were teenagers, we used to ride dirt bikes, and we did that on the gas pipelines, you know, hills. And if you've ever seen them, they're these diagonal lines that look like they're carved into the side of the hill. They're water breakers. So when the water starts, you know they're removing all the trees for the pipeline. So they have to put something that breaks the water, or or there's erosion that takes place. And of course, we used to love them because you just you you know you hit them like jumps. Build breakers that slow down your mind. Whenever the it picks up steam, and you you find yourself drifting away from God, and then and then drop whatever you're you're treasuring other than Christ. I mean, now you go to evaluation. You stop, and then then you. Your discontentment is, is because you perceive an obstacle between you and your prize. I mean, you evaluate, consider what, what you actually want, whether it's peace or rest or security. And then if it's not Christ, then that's whenever you, you repent. And until you change what you prize, your heart will never switch. I mean, where your treasure is, there your, your heart is also. And after you stop and after you, you, you evaluate, then... You drop whatever that is, then you roll your thoughts over to the Lord. You you now have to get your eyes back in the right place, on the spiritual prize. We're discontent because we've been meditating on the the wrong things, and you have to think on the right things, which is what Paul just instructed us to do about about anxiousness. Verse 9, Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think on these things. Think on those things. Think on these things. And Paul doesn't want him to think that, that he lacked contentment while he waited. So he now qualifies his thanks. Look, if you would, at verse 11. He qualifies that it wasn't because that they lacked care. They lacked opportunity. And now he qualifies his own condition. Not that I speak from respect of need. Not that I was sitting here waiting for you. I had my eyes on Christ. For I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. And the I is is emphatic. I have learned. Have learned means that he completed a process. And he says that the tool uh, of learning was every circumstance that he went through in whatever or every situation. I mean, Paul right here begins to put the key in the door of of, of contentment and begins to unlock it. I mean, he says contentment is learned and its lessons come through everyday life. And then he'll also say the lessons come in the extremes of life. I mean, the word that Paul chooses for contentment is interesting Because it's a word that the pagan philosophers called the Stoics. Um, They used this word a lot. And it meant to reach the point where nothing affects you. Um, it, It means to be sufficient in yourself. MacArthur said that the Stoics believed that the concept of contentment was reached when you had come to a point of total indifference. When you were indifferent about everything, then and only then you would be content got to the point where i'm insulated from my circumstances you sort of thought yourself into an i don't care attitude that's what a stoic believes one stoic writer said begin with a cup or household utensil if it breaks say i don't care go onto a horse or a pet dog if anything happens to it say i don't care go onto yourself and if you're hurt or injured in any way say i don't care and and if you go in long enough and you try hard enough, you'll come to a state where where even the, the nearest and dearest can suffer and you say, I don't care. That's not what Paul learned here. That's not Christian contentment. And that's not even contentment. That's, that's fatalism. That's indifference. I mean, biblical contentment doesn't mean apathy. It doesn't mean I don't care. It means that you care about something even greater than your circumstances. And that care greater is Christ. I mean, biblical contentment means that you have learned through all of those circumstances to rest or to trust in God. I mean, contentment is a spiritual state of being gratified in sovereign circumstances because you know the one who has those circumstances in you in the palm of his hand. I mean, biblical contentment that Paul's talking about here is an inward state of being satisfied with God and with His lot that's not dependent upon external circumstances. It's something that when you're in the deepest possible pain, you say, God is enough and He will sustain me. Contentment has its eyes on Him and then evaluates based on His promises and His character even when you don't understand the circumstances. I mean, you see, discontentment uses a faulty gauge. It it appraises your circumstances based on your desires or on others. And then you have two very different re- re- results between biblical contentment and, 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 and the world's uh, approach. I mean, contentment leads you, leaves you happy in God. Discontentment leads you, leaves you empty empty of happiness and fills you with resentment and anger and sadness. And it makes you a Democrat, according to the Washington Post. I mean, contentment says, with whatever I have or am, I am satisfied in God. Now remember, Paul said he learned this. Is that natural? That's not natural. I mean, you are born with wanting to be content with everything and everyone serving you. So, You come to Christ, you you die in the Lord, and then you start living for Him, and then you learn how to get to this state where you're satisfied in God. And he says that you'll learn that that's taught through your circumstances. Charles Spurgeon said the, the cure for discontent lies in living under a constant sense of divine presence. I think this is worth the quote. The more of heaven there is in our lives, the less of earth we shall covet. And the fear of God casts out envy of men. And you learn to develop that in everyday circumstances. I mean, routine circumstances that are repeated in your day. Paul says in whatever state and in extraordinary circumstances, like an unexpected diagnosis or an unexpected death. That's what he means here. In verse 12, by he says, "I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance, superabundance and suffering destitute need." I mean, he presents the two extremes here of, of life. And Paul says, "Through those circumstances, whatever circumstances, you learn how to trust God and you learn how to walk by faith." And the result is contented maturity. And as you watch another believer do that, you learn how to do that as well, which is why the Apostle Paul is putting himself up for us and to the Philippians. Younger people are typically more impulsive than older ones. And it's not because they have more drive, um, but because they haven't experienced enough circumstance to temper them. You live long enough, life tempers you. And that's why Paul tells Timothy, don't lay hands on a, you know, on a man for leadership too soon. They can fall into the snare of the devil. And right here he says, there is no microwave version of contentment either. I mean, coming to Jesus Christ doesn't insulate you from the, the battle in your, in your heart, and it doesn't insulate you from from living outside of the garden or the difficulties in the world. I mean, there's no crash courses in spiritual satisfaction. I mean, the only way you learn it is walking through the waters of life, sometimes when the waves overtake your head, and sometimes when the waters are calm. You walk through all of those with your eyes on Christ and availing yourself of the graces that that God has provided, like the Spirit, like the Word, like the church, and then allowing God to teach you through them. But as you do, you'll gain that contentment, even a contentment that can stand up in the extremes. If you would at verse 12, he says, I know how to get along with little, and I know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I mean, notice this is something Paul had already learned And he is instructed in even the extremes. I know how to get along with little. I know how to live in prosperity. Or as the King James says, abased and abounding. And the two words are the extremes of human experience. The first word means dirt poor, destitute, not even having food. Or if you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 6, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment for we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these things, be content. I mean, this word means to lack even those things, to lack food and, and covering. What would you, you go without for Christ? What have you gone without for Christ? I mean, if the answer is I can't think of anything, then, then you might need to make some changes in your life. I mean, some people won't even give up a Sunday morning of sleep to come and worship the King of Kings. Would you give up a weekend to, to learn how to counsel others? I mean, would you give up uh, one of your two weeks of vacation to serve in, in church camp for the Lord? I mean, would you give him more than just your leftover money? I mean, an amount that actually cost you something for the gospel? I mean, Paul knew what it was like to give all to Christ and be content. And he also knew how to do something just as hard He knew how to receive God's blessings without taking his eyes off of Jesus too. Did you pick that up in these verses? Our our mind naturally goes to being without. But this verse also says he learned contentment in the extreme of having overabundant blessings. I mean, the second word, to abound, means to live in prosperity, to be filled and have an abundance. I mean, if the first word meant to lack even what you you need, I mean, this word means to have more than you want, which is how we live most of the time. Which is harder, to be with or without? I mean, is it harder to have an empty hand and wish it was filled, or to have a full hand Gripped to something and pry it open and allow what's in it to fall out. I mean, which is more spiritually dangerous? To have too little where you're tempted to go around God and get what you need or have too much and forget God altogether. I mean, Proverbs says both are dangerous. Don't, don't seek either one of them. Proverbs 30. Keep deception and lives far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, which is what Paul's talking about here. Feed me with the food that is my portion, so that I will not be full. Here's the prosperity, riches. So that I will not be full and deny you and say, who is the Lord? I forget about the Lord. That I will not become impoverished, have too little and steal. And by doing that, profane the name of God. Paul says that he's lived out this prayer. He says he's learned contentment to the point that he looks beyond his lack and he can see farther than his loot. I mean, he's already been modeling it for us. I mean, you want to be like that? Follow the Apostle Paul. I mean, he started, he said, it starts with having the mind of Christ in chapter 2. Remember that? Jesus being God didn't didn't, uh, uh, presume something of, of his rights he laid aside those rights Paul had the mind of Christ that led him to his goal of being I mean I have one goal in life I want to be a sacrificial sacrificial drink offering poured out over the faith of others in chapter 2 that brought him to rejoice in the Lord in chapter 3 and the fruit of that was he was anxious for nothing in chapter 4 he had the peace of God and the God of peace was with him the apostle says I waged war against the discontentment in my heart, and I I won. He said, it's learned. It's taught through circumstances, in every situation, and I'm instructed even in the extremes. And you say, that's great, that's what I want, but I'm not sure I have the strength to to go through it or get it. I mean, when I look at myself, I, I falter at times, which is this second secret. The second secret to contentment Paul says, is that it comes through Christ. Look at verse 13. Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. What's the all things? It's all the situations of life, all the circumstances of life, the daily grind of crying children and everything in between, the extremes of your highest joys and your deepest lows. Paul says he was sustained in all of those circumstances by one thing. Divine power. And that's what this passage means. It's not a catch-all phrase. It's not what you pray when your team is 21 points down in the football game. It, I can do all things through him who strengthens me doesn't mean that there's no limits to Paul's physical capabilities. I mean, he just said he was full and he was hungry. And, and we know from Paul's testimony, he was beaten and left for dead. I mean, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, we who live are constantly delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. He was shipwrecked, he was imprisoned, he was tortured, he finally lost his head for Jesus. So what's this verse mean? It means in all of those situations... When Paul came to the end of his own abilities or when Paul was tempted to to look someplace other than Christ or to to be discontent, Christ empowered Paul with, with his own strength. He sustained him. This is why contentment is only available, only possible for believers because it takes the power of Christ and here the power of Christ is promised to every believer And Paul was grateful. That's the context of the all things. He's learned contentment in all of those circumstances. And when he needs spiritual provision to go through them, Christ's power is where he gets it. And that power is the the grateful antidote to discontentment. And that's the power that moves you through devastating circumstances. When a church goes 10 years without increasing your support or when your company goes 10 years without increasing your salary, when you have more than you need and you're tempted to forget God or thank Him, and when you have less than you want and you're lured to cut spiritual corners in every case and in between, when you run out of human steam to carry on, Christ infuses you with His power. And in those situations of life... When I have no more human resources, I receive Christ's divine empowerment. And people that are receiving Christ's divine empowerment in those circumstances, they'll say things to you like, I don't know how I'm making it. I don't know how I have such peace, but I just do. I'm infused with the strength of Christ in every place. And that's when you're going to experience it when you come to the end of your human ability. We don't ever like to get to the point that we're out of control or at least where we can't reach for the lever. But many times it's, the, it's, the, it's only whenever you get to the point of beyond your ability that, that you actually depend upon the Lord. And in those moments when you experience divine contentment and divine enablement, you, you might not like the circumstance, but you're thankful. It's one of the reasons that God allows them in the first place. I mean, you think about it. Why? I mean, if God knows that He's going to redeem believers, why does He leave us outside of the garden for as long as He does? I mean, life is a vapor; it appears and vanishes away. We expect to live to eighty-three or whatever whatever the number is. But there's no promise of that. Why does God leave us 35 years or 85 years? And why does He leave us outside of the, outside of the, uh, of the garden? Well, the big theological answer is His glory. But it's so we can experience His goodness in ways that we would have never experienced it had we not lived outside of the garden. And this period is a very short period of time whenever we will be in eternal joy and bliss with the Lord forever and ever and ever. And just like the scripture says, he who has been forgiven much loves much. Those like Paul who go through the, the daily grind and the extreme circumstances are thankful much because the Lord has sustained them. And the Bible says there are two reasons that God brings us to the point where where there's no way we can make it except for Christ's strength. And, and the first is so that we'll learn to trust Him, and the second is so you won't exalt yourself. You remember what Paul says back in 2 Corinthians when he got to a point where he was beyond his ability? It's the passage where he has this, this great vision, apostolic vision, and he's caught up into the third heaven. And the Bible says because of that extraordinary revelation for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, you gave me a thorn in the flesh. And God asks, uh, Paul asks God, I mean, he, he pleads with God three times. That's the idea. He's pleading with the Lord. He's pleading with the Lord. Remove it, change it. And Paul says, God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected, it's completed, it's learned, it's received in your weakness. And what was Paul's response to this weakening? The same that ours should be. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I delight in my weakness in insults and distresses and persecutions and difficulties in behalf of Christ. For when I am weak, and I am strong. I mean, according to 2 Corinthians 10... God allows us to get beyond our ability, never beyond His ability, but beyond our ability. Not only so will we experience His provision, but so we won't exalt ourselves. I mean, Paul said he'd seen visions and God had given him this thorn so that wouldn't happen. His grace is sufficient. That's exactly what he's saying here in Philippians. I can do all things through grace that strengthens me through Christ, through Him. I mean, so in one sense, Paul says, if you're, if you're a believer and you're at the end of your rope, you can rejoice. I mean, God has you right where you need to be to experience His strength and His character and the fact that He's good. He won't leave you or forsake you. And if He keeps you there, He keeps you in that place, it's not a sharp shower. It's a, it's a long uh, grind He says it's so you won't self-destruct, so you won't become proud. And His grace is promised in the extremes, and it's promised in the everyday of life. And God's grace also comes to us through others. Look at how He rounds this out in verse 14. Nevertheless, He goes from from the... not being in need, I've learned contentment in all these extremes and, and I am empowered by Christ. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my difficulty. You know what he says here? God's grace can come to me and does come to me through Christ, spiritually through Christ. He strengthens me. But God's grace can also come to me through you and it has, what saying. He wraps up this first part of the thank you note by bringing us back to where he started. He thanked them in verse 10, and now he praises them for their, for their concern. As God's grace floods in our hearts through the power of Christ and our Holy Spirit, and God's grace envelops us and surrounds us through other believers, through the church. And he says, you've done well to share with me in my difficulty. Uh, means something noble or something beautiful and you can and should be a vessel of god's grace to others it helps them and it also helps you i mean one of the ways to keep your eyes off of yourself and your own needs or your own abundance is to focus on others so if you have abundance keep a hole in your bucket or you you just you just bloat up And if your bucket is empty, then fill it with the service of others. It'll give you perspective. But everything Paul is teaching comes through lifelong training and brings lessons through maturing circumstances. And sometimes as Christians, we settle in our Christian lives for good enough. I mean, we think we're complete when we master the big sins, you know, drunkenness or stealing or whatever. And those things are important, but but there are other issues that we must learn and we must master as well. Sins like pride or anger, contentment, envy. They lie in the heart beneath beneath the surface. And Paul says God's got a plan for those. You learn them through your circumstances. And in them God can be trusted, and in them He'll strengthen you. And that's one of the things that we're to focus on this week in giving thanks. One of the the best examples of this actually comes from a man who wrote the the song that we sang. I didn't know Clay was, was going to sing it as well with my soul this morning. But many of you probably know the story of Horatio Spafford who wrote that song. He was a wealthy man with a wife and four daughters and a son. And he lost most of his real estate holdings in the Great Chicago Fire in 1871. And reeling from that, his family trying to adjust to, to all of this all of this temporal loss, he decides that, that his family needs a vacation. He sends his wife and his four daughters on a ship to Europe for a much-needed rest. And he stays behind to wrap up some, some business matters. And a few days after they... They departed on the the boat, him intending to join them later. He gets a a telegram that his wife wrote to him that simply said, Saved alone, meaning she was the only one who survived. The ship had wrecked and all four of his daughters had perished. And on his way alone to meet his wife on a ship on the same sea that just... uh, few days earlier had claimed his his children, Horatio Spafford put pen to paper and wrote these words, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And Paul would say, is it well with your soul this morning? This secret to contentment is only available to you if you know Jesus Christ. And if you're outside of Him, you're discontent, you're reeling in life, stop looking. I mean, that, that, that is nothing but a vehicle for you to see your true need. You need your sins forgiven. You need to come to the one who created you. You need to stop living in a way that God doesn't exist and stop being unthankful for what He's given. And if you'll come to Him, He'll give you true peace for your soul. So you might be able to learn in the daily ground of life, living outside of the garden and in the extremes of abundance and loss, how to sing that song and mean it. You have taught me to say, it's well with my soul. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for your word. Oh, how stabilizing your word is. Where do we go whenever our emotions are are blown here or there? We come back to what anchors us, which is the truth. The written word, which points us to the the rock of Christ. Immovable. Immovable. And we pray this morning, Father, for anyone who doesn't know Jesus, that they would come to know him and know his peace. We pray for any believer this morning that might be struggling and in the circumstances of their, their life. And we surely pray for the Prusacks, for Melissa, for the kids. We pray that you would fill them, Lord, with with Christ's divine strength, and we pray that even beyond that, we would envelop them with the love of this church. We know that you'll sustain them, and they'll be faithful. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.